This is episode 46 of the Soul of Sensitivity podcast. I'm your host, Anna Holden, the resident intuitive healer and witch at SensitivityUncensored.com. Each new and full moon, I bring you the voices of sensitive, empathic, and creative pioneers starting conversations to lift up the voices of sensitive souls who have a piece of the solution to help all of us evolve out of the limiting patriarchal structures that bind us and start to create a new world that values us all. This is the Soul of Sensitivity. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. It's Friday, July 5th, as I record this introduction, and I hope you all survived the 4th of July. For those of us who are highly sensitive, um, uh, the the sounds, the sights, the drunkenness, the littering, um, the way that this country celebrates independence can be a bit jarring. And in fact, I would use a lot stronger words to um, to define it. I think it's gross. I think I don't. I don't really like the way that we celebrate. I do like um, I do like some of the things that our country stands for. But the way that we celebrate through loud noises, fireworks, fireworks that have been shown to litter the land, the water, to scare animals, to bring about PTSD and veterans and other folks living with PTSD. It's um. It really makes the idea of independence, this idea of personal freedom, seem very egotistical to, uh, in, in terms of what we really are, which is interdependent. We are interdependent on one another um, in order to live. And even the United States is interdependent on other countries, right, in order to have what we have. So uh, I, I gave a little bit of a longer rant on Instagram and you can find it there but um, I hope that you're surviving I hope that you are having at least some some well I hope that you're having a good holiday I want to try to put that on you put on my stuff on you Um, I basically put my earplugs in and and laid in a dark room (laughs) that was how and snuggled my toddler that's how I got through the fireworks of the 4th of July and um you know, if I didn't have a young child, I would probably head out to a late night movie somewhere where I can't hear um, all of the fireworks. So if you're in an area with fireworks and they're going to continue through the weekend, I hope this podcast maybe can be a place of solace. You can put on your headphones and listen to Suki Baxter and I talk about positivity washing, which I am so excited. But let's um, situate ourselves for a moment, shall we? So again, I'm recording this on Friday, July 5th. We've had a new moon with uh, in, uh, let's see, in Cancer with a total solar eclipse that was visible from the, uh, some parts of the Southern Hemisphere, I think in Chile and um, Patagonia. That was on Tuesday. So we're just coming out of this new moon. Um, and the moon right now is actually in Leo. And so I know that I really felt the moon in Leo yesterday. And I mean... oh my gosh, like to have a new moon in Leo on the 4th of July. Of course, we're all wanting to do exactly what we want to do and to um, have all of our own intentions and our own dreams come come true. And um, such a um, 
when the when the moon is in Leo, it's all about us. We want some drama. We want to be recognized for our, you know, ourselves. And I know that for me, especially with this, um, just you know, just coming out of the new moon, I, I really just wanted to be recognized. I wanted my partner to see me. I wanted um, I, I wanted to be seen. And I, you know, and I could tell that he really wanted to be seen and we were not communicating super well yesterday. So um, that's how that this, that Leo moon can help us feel. But at 9.25 p.m. Um, Pacific Standard Time tonight, the moon um, will be moving into uh, Virgo. And so it'll be a crescent moon, just a, a, a waxing crescent moon. So this is the time coming from new moon to first quarter where we are setting our intentions, we're planting our seeds, we're um, just at the very beginning of a new cycle. And so the new moon in Virgo is about, um, you know, mental activities and work pursuits, um, routines. And I know that I'm already starting to feel the effects of this moon because I'm looking around my office going, how can I organize this so that my morning routine can feel a little bit better? And um, whereas yesterday I really wanted to go for a mountain bike ride today, I'm like, I think I'm going to stay home and organize the house because if we can do this differently, then we as a family can have this routine. (laughs) Um, and so I'm definitely feeling this energy. So this is where you might feel the need to reorganize or restructure your plans or notice that the way that you set intentions under the um, Cancer New Moon need to be shifted just a little bit. You know, I always think of the metaphor of planting seeds, whereas you planted your seeds and thought that they should be watered every day. Maybe you're seeing like, ooh, actually, you know, the soil's not drying out. I don't want to overwater them. So you might be kind of... Um, uh, making putting a little bit more order into the seeds that you planted and kind of ironing out uh, some of your details. So um, that's the the energy we're going to be under for, let's see, Friday, um, all the way until um, late Sunday night. So enjoy that. Thank you. Before I forget, thank you to everyone who supports this podcast and all of my free work on patreon.com. Your support, your continued support means a lot to me. Um, And it really, really helps make uh, these types of projects doable for me. So if you like this free work um, that I am offering, you can support by going to patreon.com forward slash sensitivity uncensored and subscribe or or not subscribe, but become a patron at a $2 level, a $5 level and anything really helps support this free work. I, I put a lot of Uh, more free content into the Refuge for Sacred Rebellion, which is a free membership group. Um, I have a blog on my website and tons, you know, I built tons of free resources over the last six years that I've been doing this. In fact, you can get some of those free resources just through my blog, um, but also in the boutique on my website, there are some resources for free. There are some paid resources as well, um, but there's a lot of things for you to take advantage of. So I hope that you... um, uh, you know, so you can spend some time surfing around and find what you're what you're looking for in terms of resources for the magical and highly sensitive. Okay, today, I'm really excited to share this conversation with Suki Baxter. So Suki was on the podcast before. She's my first repeat uh, person. She was on episode three, and 
Suki is a um, posture and movement specialist. Um, she utilizes the work of rolfing and somatic experiencing in her work, um, but she's also just one of my best friends. And something that we have been talking about in our, just kind of our texts and our WhatsApp messages, and something that we've noticed for a long time is this, um, what we're calling now, the the cult of, of positive thinking or the, the cult of the positivity movement. And, um, and really what I like to call positivity washing, how we tend to um, as a culture, as a people, um, want to move away from anything that is low vibe, um, bad vibes, you know, labeling emotions, negative, positive, that sort of a thing, and how harmful and potentially dangerous this movement is. I think this movement, and we're calling it a movement, I don't know if you would really call it that, but we're calling it a movement. I think it was born out of good intentions to help us be you know, to feel better more of the time, to be happier, to be able to take more action and have more motivation. The problem with it, which we're going to go into much detail about, is that the way that the positivity movement talks about getting positive has no basis in biology and sciences and is actually detrimental to our body and our psychology. Suki and I talked for two hours, which is why you're seeing this as a part one and a part two. And I'm trying to be judicial, uh, I think that's the right word, about where I um, uh, break this this section up to put them into about one hour more manageable pieces for you to listen to. Um, So basically, you're going to get part one here where we kind of lay out the problems with the positivity movement. We... um, talk about the uh, the nervous system and evidence as to why a lot of the strategies that are utilized by um, some of the wellness industry and the coaching industry are um, ultimately um, unsustainable and go against our biology. In part two, you're going to hear, we're going to continue to discuss the problem, but we're going to dive deep into solutions. You know, if you're, if you, if you actually want to be happier and you want to be productive, how do we do that in a way that goes along with our biology, that actually works with how our emotions are, are meant to move in the body, how our nervous system operates, how our psychology operates. Um, so I don't want to spend too much more time in this introduction. Suki and I talk for a long time. I will try to get all of these resources posted in the show notes. Um, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Now, if you've been part of, of positivity movements before and you've had good experiences with them, awesome. But I hope that you'll re, you know, listen to this with an open mind about how you can actually better work with your biology. So without further ado, here is our conversation about positivity. Yeah, I mean, it occurs to me, I'm trying to think about when was it that I first really started um, hearing about this positivity movement? Like, when did this become such a thing? Um, I think it was back when we started working with Kelly and we discovered the female lifestyle empowerment brand and Uh how there was this pressure, at least for me, this was when I kind of started being aware of it is like the pressure to show up as sunshiny and happy and grateful for everything, for the good, for the bad, uh-huh. and, and that um, 
you know, it's like I, I picture the, um, you know, the, the toes in the sand picture and the hashtag grateful, you know. Right. Of- and showing all the best parts of yourself in order to fit into kind of what society expects from females and successful females and, and, right. and perpetuating like a lifestyle and a brand. Yeah. So I think that's when I became aware of it. And then I think Mm -hmm. there's another bigger movement on a different level. So that's kind of the internet, social media level, but um, on a tech founder type of level, Mm. um, there's all of this, um, you know, like these, all this pressure for people to have these like really anesthetize or not anesthetize but like sterilize like clinically antiseptic um lives where like they've taken all the bad stuff out where they're going on these 10-day meditation retreats and they're eating you know 10 to 12 servings of vegetables a day and yeah. they work out every morning and like this pressure for these like quote success rituals and then these really wealthy people are held up as like you know this person that like the correlation is that this person is successful because they're so positive and they do so much of this like wellness which i think positive mm-hmm. the positivity movement and the wellness movement are intertwined mm-hmm. you know and so there's all this pressure on us to like <clears throat> like do what they're calling self care but it's it's a whole bunch of like extra stuff that a lot of people just don't have the resources, whether it's time or money to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think where I noticed it first actually was back when I, back in 2000, gosh, what was that? 2007, eight and nine, when I was um, getting, getting more into the yoga community and starting to teach yoga and particularly in yoga teacher trainings. And it wasn't necessarily that the, that the teacher training was teaching that, but there's this interesting thing that happens in the spiritual communities, in spiritual communities, that when you start to, and I'm not saying this happens to everyone, but I've just noticed that when when you start to bring consciousness to what's unconscious, when you actually start to do that work of, um, you know, uh, starting to understand things about yourself, like doing your own work, like starting to understand your patterns and things that weren't there before and to kind of strive to have um, a quieter mind, right? That's kind of what yoga is teaching, strive to have a quieter mind. I find that there can be, especially in that beginning phase, a lot of intolerance, for anything that brings you down, Is that, if that makes sense. And so what I found was that um, I noticed that in myself, there was an intolerance for what brings me down, which was really my problem, right? That's nobody else's problem. That's my problem. And there was also this um, kind of silent pressure to show up at, you know, as a yoga teacher, bright and shiny, no matter what was going on with you that day, because mm-hmm. you were there to show up for someone else, which I think that there's a measure of, um, you know, I think that there's a measure of something in that that's good, right? You know, we show up for other people. But I remember my, the very first early morning yoga class that I was going to teach at, I was laying on the bathroom floor vomiting at 4am. I was supposed to teach at 6am and I called in sick and the suggestion was to go and teach from the floor that I should go and pretend everything is like, okay. And just like do a teaching from the floor and like pretend that that was just a thing that I was doing. And I remember being like, that doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so much wrapped up in that. There's so much wrapped up in that. But, but I mean, I, I don't know if the positivity movement is defined or if it's just kind of, like you said, I think it's tied with the wellness movement. I think it's tied into the coaching, to a lot of um, uh, life coaching and kind of business coaching that's out there. Um, I think it's tied into the spirituality movement, and we'll talk about spiritual bypassing later on. Um, but it, it, it's, it's almost like a, 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 a way to purify. It's very puritanical, a way to kind of purify um, life, right? To make it all bright and bright and shiny. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that the, um, the positivity movement is in the zeitgeist, you know, a little bit. And I think that all of those different areas are pulling yeah. from it, you know, and I think social media is an echo chamber that makes it a lot louder. Cause you get, like I said, the hashtag grateful, you know, like all over social media and it's not like, don't be grateful, you know, <laughs> but, right. but it's, it's, there's a, a brittleness to that you know there's a um like it's like a humble brag in a sense right it's like like um like that like the hashtag blessed like yeah I mean it's it's a too blessed to be stressed or whatever yeah you know and it's like well I mean honestly if that's true like good for you that is awesome um that's not anyone I know <laughs> like everyone I know is like you know what it's white people I know really? who are saying that I'm like maybe you're blessed maybe you're white privilege I don't know <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like it's anyone like I have friends you know uh, you know in all different areas and it's like they may show up that way on social media and then when I get to talking to them one-on-one I'm like so what's really you know so what's going on how you doing it looks like you're having a good time and they're like oh my god my life is falling apart and this and my kid and my husband and my blah 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 you know and it's like yeah. I mean and, and I think that's normal right like we all have something that we're we're struggling with and Anyway, that's a whole other, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. But let's kind of define like what, like, what are we talking about when we're talking about the positivity movement? Like, what are we including in these kind of um, thought groups? Yeah. So, and I, you know, you and I have talked about this, but I think that it's, um, the, when, when you and I say the positivity movement, because that's our term, right? That right. I don't know. I don't know if other people are using that term, but just between you and me, I think we're talking about, um, how there is an intolerance or a, an, an unacceptance and not accepting, I'm not sure what the right word is there, but <laughs> of, um, um, of anything that is deemed like a negative emotion or anything that could be like a shadow side. Um, so it's, it's people saying things like, you know, 100% personal responsibility and your results are only your results because of the effort you put in. So it's very much meritocracy. Um, it's saying like if you have struggles in your life, then you just haven't worked hard enough to address them. Um, it's saying you know good vibes only. Show you know when you show up in a in a group, you're not allowed to bring any sadness or even just criticism. You know, like even if you have feedback that may not be necessarily negative, just simply feedback that is then taken as negative and that seen as like not okay right and sometimes even just questions mm-hmm. can be you know depending on who is running the show can be deemed as negative because you're questioning the positive vibes of the person who is running the show right yeah and i and i think it has an energy to it like when i've been in these you know when i've been in groups of people where this is the the culture i guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um what i notice is like 
there's almost this um, adulation that goes on and like everything is meant to be and oh my gosh, this is so great. And like, this is so perfect and everything is amazing. And like to the point where I start sitting there going like, I mean, it's good. Like I'm not, you know, this, this is good, but, but like, wow, you know, I mean, there are some things that are maybe could be better. You know I mean? Like it's, nobody ever says like, oh, this is really beneficial. And this, you know, like, for example, if somebody does like a training, you know, you, there's none of this, like that was, this part was really helpful. Where I have questions or where I may differ is on this point, this point, and this point, you know, can we discuss that? It's just like, everything is perfect. Everything is amazing. Accepted without question. Almost like, verging on brainwashing. I wouldn't say it's that far, yeah. but verging on it. This is why I call it positivity washing. Yeah. Because it's like, if there's this, there's this washing of anything negative, anything that's not your best self. And I'm using air quotes for best self. Like, what is that anyway, by the way, like <laughs> anything that's not your best self as defined by somebody else. Um, yeah. And, and saying, you know, nothing that can be deemed um, as, as negative or questioning or, what strikes me about what you're saying is that there's no room for iteration. There's no room for change. So how are problems actually solved? How is progress ever actually made if there's no room for questions and iteration and change? Yeah. And so just for like a concrete example, um, several years ago, I had signed up for a, um, a group coaching program that was a fitness-based, like health-based group coaching program. Um, and there was a, as part of this, there was a Facebook group that everyone who was in the program was allowed to be in. It was a really big group. Like, you know, it wasn't like 12 of us. It was like, you know, I don't know, 500 or something or maybe more. Um, and the group was really cool. It was like really funny and people had really fun things to say. And it was around, you know, weightlifting and nutrition. Um, and it was a very supportive group. And then they started to say like the, the Facebook group is a place for positivity only. So only you can't post anything negative, right? So first of all, what became, you know, what became considered as negative was entirely subjective. So somebody would post something and it would get deleted by one of the admins. And then that person would be like, what did I say? Like, that didn't seem negative to me. And then there were all these arguments about what constituted negative feedback. And then there was this rift that happened and people who were really integral to that group, because you know, when there's a group like that, there's always people who are just like, they lead with their personality and they, right. they become like, you know, part, like a really big part of the group. Yeah. People, people who were just like really accepted in the social circle started to have conflicts with the people who were running the program. And then the people who were running the program decided that they would just delete people and kick them out of the program if they were negative based on negativity, which then created more negativity in the entire group. And I ended up myself, I never had a problem. I never had a conflict. I was never, you never had a comment that was deleted, but I removed myself from the group because I was like, this is too much drama. This is not genuine. I don't feel like I can be myself here. Like, you know, well, and what's so, in what's so interesting or what I'm hearing that's really interesting about that story is that you know, there, it sounds like at the outset, they're trying to create a really positive, non-toxic community, but what they created was toxicity. Exactly. By suppressing. <laughs> and, and I mean, these Realness. Are not, yeah. And these are not people who were coming on and just like, you know, spewing, you know, it, it, these were not internet trolls, you know, like I understand right. like 
deleting internet trolls. That's a whole other thing. But right. these people were not being internet trolls. They were, they had feedback about the program. They had feedback about the results that they were getting. They had frustrations. I mean, you know, weightlifting and nutrition is frustrating sometimes. And so they had frustrations. They had, um, you know, ups and downs in life, you know, happening and bumps and bruises. And they were sharing at times when they maybe weren't in like their greatest motivation, you know, when they weren't super happy and all about whatever. And, um, and they were looking for support from a community that understood this journey. And by suppressing that, you're right, they created, you know, they created um, like, it was like good vibes only, except that by suppressing it, they created a bunch of bad vibes in everybody in the community. I have no idea what's going on with it now. I, well, I haven't followed it. But you know, and those times when we are not at our happiest, when we are reaching out for support, those times actually create portals for connection right? Those allow others to have empathy for us, to um, support us, potentially, right? Support us in a way that we need to be supported and to actually create more good vibes, right? Because when we, you know, it, we don't necessarily connect super well on positivity all the time. Like think about any good friend that you have, anyone who's been around for a long time, your relationship is going to go through highs and lows. You're going to go through the highs and lows of life together. And that's what bonds you. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what bonds people together in relationships too. Right. When you have yeah. couples, um, you know, it's not, it's not the happy vacation. I mean, those things are great, right? Like the vacations and the good times and the parties and, you know, all of that. That stuff is nice, but what really glues people together is when you are going through it, you know, and you get to the other side and you did it together through teamwork. I mean, that's why um, there's a lot of depression and um, I don't even know, I'm, you know, what I, there's, I know there's depression, probably other things going on in um, soldiers who are coming back from war scenarios because they have this platoon that is just like super tight and they are your family you know that you have yeah. this deep deep connection and they get back to civilian life and there isn't anything with that intensity you know you're in a life or death situation there and you have their back and they have your back and you are in it together and and you know like it is the intensity and the and the challenge of that scenario that really creates a deep deep trust mm -hmm. between those people and so they come mm -hmm. home and how do you find that same level of intensity and so when you're, you know, when you're creating this like no negativity, good vibes only type of culture, um, you're, you're almost robbing people of, you know, that level of connection. That is a very deep place to connect. Yeah. And I would say that th this type of behavior, this positivity washing, I mean, I think we're, we haven't said the word, but we're, we're talking about it. It's dangerous. It's dangerous because it can isolate people, can isolate people who aren't feeling their best. And, you know, these this idea that we all should be at our most positive all the time is I would actually, I don't like to make the natural, not natural argument, but I would actually argue that this time that it's completely unnatural because that's not how the human system works. That's not how anything in nature works. Nothing in nature blooms year round, nothing. There's always a rest period. There's always a relaxed period. There's always something else happening you know, if yeah. we look at, right. So, so it's, 
it, it, I mean, it's dangerous because of what uh, suppressing those states actually does to the body, which we're going to talk about here soon. Yeah, well, so I, I love that you brought that up. And um, you and I had talked about the whole argument of anabolic and catabolic energy. Mm -hmm. So just from a biological standpoint within your system, um, and I understand these through biological terms. I don't know if they're used in other like, na you know, natural environmental terms as well. Mm -hmm. But, but basically, um, anabolism and catabolism are functions of your metabolism. And they work to maintain what's called homeostasis, which is a, a balance place. And it's not a static balance place, but it's like a range within which you can be healthy. Mm -hmm. um, and anabolic energy. Um, so I, I recently heard a, a definition of anabolic and catabolic energy where, you know, catabolism was defined as like a negative force because it's breaking things down. And anabolism was defined as a positive force because it's a building energy. Uh, so for example, in your body, cat catabolic energy would break down muscle tissue and anabolic energy would build muscle tissue, which sounds like, well, catabolism is bad and anabolism is good because you want building energy. You don't want to tear things down. But then I heard this really great definition of the two from um, a neuroscientist called Antonio Damasio. He's written several books, and this came from his book, um, A Strange Order of Things. And he defined catabolism as a breakdown of molecules, excuse me, a breakdown of molecules that results in the release of energy. So it's basically making energy available to use. And then anabolism is a process of construction that consumes energy. So it actually burns fuel, right? It's like the car that burns through gas. So I love this definition because in this, you know, when you look at it through this lens, neither one is good or bad. One of them breaks stuff down and, and then it produces energy. So that's like a good beneficial thing. And the other one, you know, constructs things, which is great. It's beneficial, but it also consumes energy while constructing while building. So you need both of these things, right? You can't have one. If you just had anabolism, if you just had quote positive energy, you would run out of fuel and that's burnout. Yes. And that is totally what happens, right? You know, within those communities. And, you know, when I hear you use those definitions for anabolism and catabolism, what I'm hearing is, you know, in what I would define in energy terms is transformation, you need both of those things to transform. So when I look at the spiritual mechanics of something, so say we want to go from one state of being to a different state of being, you know, we're in one place, we'd like to be in a different place um, and how we feel in our system. We have to break down the stuff that's not working. We have to look at it. We have to process it. We have to go into the shadow of it. We have to, you know, ignite it. We have to break it down. Then we can rebuild. There's no magic system for skipping over that. All you're doing is burying it deeper and you're going to have a bigger hole to dig into the next time you want to get to where you go. Yeah. And from, I mean, so I, I do, you know, my work is, is centered around bodies and structure mm -hmm. and posture and movement. And just from a really basic body, um, you know, lens, you have to, to get stronger, you literally have to break down your muscles. When you go to the gym and you lift weights, nothing happens then. You're actually tearing your muscles down. You're not getting stronger when you're doing that. You're breaking down your cells. You're creating these little micro tears in your muscle. That's why you get sore mm -hmm. uh, from, from exercise. And then what happens is that your body rebuilds itself stronger. 
So that's how you put on strength. That's how you gain muscle, breaking it down first and building it up second. So you literally can't get stronger without the catabolic energy. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think it's really harmful. I, you know, the, this, this particular definition was um, a real struggle for me because it also categorizes things as good and bad, right? So like, yes, it, it puts certain feelings and emotions and experiences into a bad category and makes you wrong for it and other experiences into a good category. And, th- and if you can kind of look at it from this biological perspective of maintaining homeostasis with these two types of energy, there's neither one that's good or bad. They are a balance. You can't balance without one or the other. The scale mm-hmm. would just be off. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like anger has more negative weight than love or joy, right? They they just are. And I think we attach too much meaning to our feelings. Yes. And I, I would totally agree with you. And in fact, when you study actual wisdom traditions, so, and I want to make a, a separation here, wisdom traditions being different than pop culture, spirituality, and some coaching that's out there because it's very intellectualized. So it did not actually does not actually necessarily come from wisdom traditions. So for example, in the yoga philosophy tradition, which I'm uh, familiar with, you know, they, they talk about the, the emotion is not the problem. Your story about the emotion is the, it can, can be the problem. And so the emotion is not good or bad. The, the, our experience of the emotion and our experience of our story about the emotion can feel bad. Is that makes sense. So it's not, and that's what you get with the wisdom tradition is it, it doesn't categorize things as good or bad. It says, actually, here's probably where the suffering is. So if you look at this part, you may be able to move through it and reduce the suffering. And so that's something that, you know, I've been teaching for years in the yoga tradition is to start to have awareness of the sensation of the emotion first, where does it originate in the body? But then what story do you start to tell yourself about the emotion? So I know that when I was having a lot of really high anxiety, the anxiety itself was tricky because my nervous system was kind of in fight or flight, but the story was debilitating. The story was, if you are anxious and having panic attacks, you will be deemed unworthy of taking care of your children. You will be like, it was this, um, you know, this, this narrative. Right. You'll be called crazy. I'll be called crazy. Right. It was this like self detrimental narrative that was so scary. The anxiety itself, I can learn how to regulate my nervous system, but it's the story that actually feels bad. Right. And so that can be so easily turned into, well, then that feeling is negative, which it's not. Like you said, it just is. It was, it was something that was happening because of my circumstances. You know, something was happening because of my circumstances. This is the way that my body was responding to it. Which is normal. Which is normal. Exactly. That's what our bodies are designed to do is to respond to our circumstances. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean, we live in a really unnatural world and that's a whole other conversation that we could talk about in terms of like the, the level of stress that we just deal with on a regular basis and how that's not what we're biologically designed for. Um, 
But you, you said something really interesting, and mm -hmm. that is that you can learn how to regulate the nervous system. But I, I really think that a lot of what we're seeing past as neural regulation is actually control and shutdown. Ooh, let's, yes, I would agree, particularly within the positivity washing movement. So let's talk about this. Yeah. Okay. So I got to, I got to go to horses for a second because you know me. You do horses. <laughs> my, my best teachers are horses. And I just spent a couple of days at this really amazing, um, it is a horse training clinic on paper, but um, I came home after the first day and I'm talking about like meditation and energy healing and animal communication and like ayahuasca ceremonies and like ketamine. And I mean, like the, the topics were so far ranging and all around these like, you know, sort of um, personal development things, I guess. <laughs> and I, people were like, I thought you were at like a horse training clinic. Like what the, what's going on? <laughs> um, but it's, it, it relates because like when you're working with a horse, First of all, there's a relationship there that's forming. And so you are part of that, just like any relationship, you know, you have to work on yourself because mm -hmm. you can't show up in a relationship unless you're uh, fully present. But where the anxiety and the shutdown piece comes in is that a lot of these horses were coming in and like, we can't have a, a, a conversation with them in English, right? We can't just be like, so what's going on? How are you feeling? You know, like, what's, tell me what's going on. What's frustrating you? What's, you know, what? You know, they just, they can't, they, it's not part of their biology. They don't do language, but they have a lot of other things that are very similar to us. And so I kind of think they're a really interesting uh, tableau because they are basically us without the language part. We can't, they can't tell the, themselves the story part, right? So they don't get attached to that. Mm -hmm. And all of these horses, you know, are basically, what we saw was that they were really good at doing their job. Not all of them, but a, a good portion of them, really good at doing their job but they were shut down. So you'd be like, hey, I'd like you to walk in a circle around me. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. And they would just go inside themselves and they would just do the thing. And they'd be like walking in the circle, but they weren't present and connected, right? And so when, when we started to ask, when the, you know, the handlers would start to ask for the horse to like pay attention, like, hey, look at me, like, are you here? Wake up, you know, you and me, we're talking, we're having a conversation right now, like look me in the eye that's where anxiety would show up. And suddenly the horse was like, oh my gosh, you know, it's, it's so this, this horse was showing up, you know, not one, but several horses were showing up as like really well-trained, really well-behaved, able to do their job, no problem, right? And then these people came to this clinic because there was usually what they'd say is like, they're fine until they, they're not, they just explode out of nowhere for no reason whatsoever. Because what's happening is that they have shut down their anxiety because there's nowhere for it to go. They don't have any other option, right? Because, you know, a horse in captivity has to do what they're told to do. They don't have a lot of choices. Um, so if they have all this anxiety and it's not being recognized and it's not being, you know, there's no space that's held for it and there's no place for that horse to express it, it has to go inside. So they shut down. So I see this happening in people too, right? It's the same kind of thing we're anxious, but there's nowhere for it to go. And particularly within the positivity movement, if you say you're not allowed to feel quote, negative emotion, bad emotions, if you just have to focus on these like happy thoughts all the time, that anxiety doesn't have anywhere to go. And you numb it out, you shut it down, you control it and you're functioning fine. You're, you're like getting up in the morning, you're going to work, you're making the food, feeding the kids, whatever, whatever your life requires, but you're like not present and connected. So you're controlling the anxiety 
but you're not like, it's like you're dissociated. You're not fully in your life. And, and then you and I have talked about this um, as well, but as Brene Brown says, you know, you cannot selectively suppress emotions. So if, yep. you're, if you're suppressing and controlling that anxiety, you're also suppressing joy, grief, love, excitement, like all of that stuff gets buffered a little bit. So you don't really feel it. And again, all of the things we need to connect, right? All of those pieces that we need to connect, we're, we're repressing those. And, you know, when you're talking about the horses, I go to kids because I don't know horses, but, you know, I've got a child and a child on the way. And, and because I have, I have boys, I think this is, I, th- I think this is a, a problem for women, non-binary men, everyone, but particularly I see this being a problem for men in our culture because men and little boys in particular are taught that it's not okay for them to feel. It's not okay for them to cry. They just need to behave. They need to toughen up. They need to man up. They need to, you know, put on their big boy pants or whatever and, um, and numb out their feelings. And then as boys become men, culturally or socially speaking, they're only really allowed to show anger. You know, that's really the only emotion that's available to them that's kind of socially acceptable. And we have this, you know, country full of, I shouldn't say country full of, but we have a lot of violent, you know, men in our culture. And just just today I was dropping my son off at daycare and there's a little boy in there who my son just loves. And he has a hard time at drop-offs, this, this little kid. You know, he, he gets upset. He gets anxious. He cries. And he gets, then he gets angry, right? All the emotions that we feel when, you know, things are not going our way, right? And, and I just, I watch his mother say, don't cry. You're not allowed to cry. No crying. This kid is two and a half. Wow. This kid is two and a half. And I'm just sitting there going like, it's okay for him to cry. He's sad, you know? And in fact, like crying with the comfort of a teacher or the comfort of a a lovey or something like that is so much healthier than teaching him to bottle that up. And surprise, this kid has had a lot of behavioral issues in the classroom. And I'm kind of like, yeah, because he's bottling up all these really strong emotions that he has about you know, this and probably other things, you know, so I just see it starting so young, potentially for, I mean, it's not potentially, especially for little boys. Um, and that's kind of, like you said, your horses, I'm kind of focused on little boys right now. Yeah. Um, and it's, but, just, I mean, it's the same, yeah. right? Because, yeah. you know, it's, it's the same kind of idea because toddlers, I mean, even though at two, two and a half, they have, um, language and they can talk, they're not sophisticated enough to have this, the same kind of complex stories that we tell no. ourselves as adults. And no. so really what you're working with is kind of a pure nervous system where mm-hmm. what you see is what you get and what, you know, whatever they're expressing in the moment is, is most likely what they're feeling. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really similar. That's, it's exactly the same thing. She's like, okay, I don't care how you feel about it. You have to do the thing that I'm asking you to do. You have to behave. Yeah, you have to behave. And so that's what this trainer, this horse trainer was talking about is he's like, I used to be, he's really interesting. Um, His name is Warwick Schiller. If anyone wants to like check him out and follow him. Um, He's a great guy. He's older um, Australian guy has lived in the States for a long time. And he's, you know, he, he's really changed his training methods over the last few years. And he says, I used to be really good at getting a horse to behave. I could get him to do all the things. 
but he admits that he didn't realize how shut down his horses were. And he had this horse that he talks about, I think his name is Bundy, where he's, you know, this horse would do everything perfectly, but he was like, so inside himself and so shut down he just wasn't present and connected yes and you know sorry i'm kind of interrupting but you know what's so interesting about this to me i go back to parenting styles and we've talked a little bit about this but um there are these different kind of parenting styles one is permissive which we're not going to really talk about one is authoritarian um which is like kind of like what you're talking about um which is authoritarian is when you're basically as the adult using your fight response in your nervous system to elicit a freeze response in the child. So they behave. They do. You get good results in terms of behavior, but you're not prioritizing relationship. You're not prioritizing feeling. And so then there's authority. Uh, authoritative, which is kind of that in-between where you're not using your nervous system to trigger theirs. You're, you're valuing relationship, you're valuing feelings and boundaries at the same time, which I, I had an experience last night with my son where I, I can't remember what he was doing at the time, but he was starting to get really angry. And I said, I see that you're feeling really angry you know, what do you think would be um, some good decisions to make right now? You know, and he's a little too young for that. That might've been the wrong line of questioning, but he started to um, uh, move like he was going to throw his plate off of the table. And I said, okay, Sloan, my son's name is Sloan. I said, if you throw your food off the table, you're going to have to go to bed. And he looked at me and he threw his food off the table. I said, okay, let's go to bed. So we went to bed together and then I laid him down and talked to him. I said, okay, let's talk. Looks like you are feeling really angry at the table. He said, yeah, I'm feeling mad. I said, do you think it was a good decision to throw your food on the floor? He goes, no. I said, okay, let's think about better decisions with our anger. And so then, you know, we brainstormed together you know, two-year-old decisions about what we could do with our anger, which is a little sophisticated for him, but we did it. You know, we talked about having big feelings. Sometimes our feelings get so big, you know, that sort of a thing. And then I made sure that he knew that I loved him even when he was angry. And then he was like, fine. And we read books and he went to bed. I'm not saying, trying to say this because I'm parent of the year, but what I'm trying to say is that there can be this middle ground where you hold a boundary, but you still respect the relationship. You still honor the feeling. You still recognize the struggle that they're having, you know, big feelings and little bodies. And you provide assistance because you're basically teaching them how to regulate, assist, you know, how to regulate their system, which their, their, their system isn't sophisticated enough to do on their own. Yeah. So... There's, I, I'm going to come, yeah, I think that's awesome, by the way. I think that's a really uh, a great way. Like, I love that, you know, that what you're doing is, is giving him ownership of his feelings. And very similarly, you know, coming back to the, the horse example, um, mm -hmm. one of the things that, actually, this guy has a really great video with this mare, this uh, a horse, a, a female horse, it's called a mare. Um, and she's just having a meltdown at this like expo. And it's just, she's just like, she's basically having a panic attack. And, and so her emotions are really big, right? And she can't control it. And she has no idea 
Like he's standing there holding her in a, on a lead rope on the ground, right? She has no idea there's a human. Like she's completely checked out. She's flipping. She's losing her mind. She's absolutely shaking and running and like completely losing her mind. And all he does is set boundaries and ask for attention. He's like, okay, you can have your emotions. I'm not going to tell you you have to, because the, the thing is that we do this with kids and we do this with animals, right? So this horse is flipping out. Most people would be like, stand still. Why won't you stand still? Stand still. Why won't you just stop running around? Ah, God, stupid, stubborn mule. You know, like, why won't you stand still? Why are you acting so crazy? You're 10 years old. How about, you know, like, like we do this with our kids too. Like, why are you throwing a tantrum? I don't know, just, you know, just putting your shoes on or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And so all he does is say, you can have your tantrum. But the only thing, the only boundaries are, one, you, you can't go beyond the end of the rope. If you hit the end of the rope, I'm going to draw your attention back to me. Mm-hmm. And two, you can't run me over. So anytime that she would kind of, there's, and these are things that you learn, like there's, you know, you have like a bubble, a personal space bubble around you. So if they go into your personal space bubble, they are quote, running you over. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you, you don't want, you know, 1200 pounds, 1400 pounds of horse. On Fair top enough. Of you. <laughs> <It's not laughs> yeah. Right. So like children, I mean, I think this happens a lot with kids cause we can, we're bigger than them. We can overpower yep. them. I can hold your foot and shove your shoe on, right? Yep. I don't have to get your buy-in with yep. 1200 pounds of horse. Suddenly all of your, all of like your, I mean, the person holding the rope, all your stuff shows up because you can't force this animal to pay attention to you. So, yep. so it was really fascinating. I and mean, this, this video was online, but he, I saw some of this same stuff happen at the clinic that I was just at this weekend where it's just directing their attention back to you and giving them boundaries. The boundary yep. is the end of my rope. And also you can't run on top of me. And if you hit the end of the rope or try to run me over, then I'm going to draw, you know, bring your attention back to me and I'm going to have you look at me and connect yep. and this relationship. And this horse, it was incredible after an hour of this. I mean, it sounds like a long time, but really it isn't. She'd been like this for at least four years. The owner had had her four years at the end of this time, she was standing and she had all these amazing releases, all these physical kind of discharge symptoms during that hour. And at the end of the hour, she was able to stand in one place and look at the person holding the rope, which doesn't sound like a really big deal, except that she was in the middle of a panic attack. I think, but I think that is a big deal. You know, when we allow emotions to run their course, right? If we even just look at the, the work by Candace Pert and how emotions change ourselves, you know, particularly if they're pushed down or, or, you know, repressed, if we just let them move, if we let them run their course, they get out. I mean, that sounds actually really similar. What I do with my son when he's having a tantrum and he's only had really big tantrums a couple times, but I do the same thing. I set boundaries. You can't, you can't hit anyone else, right? You can't kick or hit mommy because usually it's a kind of throwing arms, kicking feet type of a thing. Uh, and uh, usually that's it. You, know, you can't hurt yourself. Like those are the things. And, and I'm just right here if you need me. Mm-hmm. And so I just maintain that, you know, I'm right here if you need me. Not going to yeah. force you to do anything. Because the and nervous system, sorry, I'm, I know I'm interrupting, but basically yeah. the nervous system can't go up and, and I mean, we can talk about dysregulation and disorganized nervous systems, but the natural state of the nervous system is it goes up and then it discharges all of the stress and then it comes back down. And so if you allow the child to have the tantrum and go all the way through it rather than stopping it in the middle, then 
they are going to re-regulate back to the downswing, right? So that's a normal healthy nervous system and where we become traumatized and why most of us are carrying some kind of trauma, even though, you know, there's traumatic events, which are obvious, right? Like war, abuse, you know, like all the things that we know that are traumatic, but a lot of us have some kind of trauma that we don't even recognize as trauma from having our emotions stopped in the middle, right? So like you're having a tantrum and this is where that positivity washing comes in. You're having a tantrum and it's making me uncomfortable and I need you to stop in the middle. Like you need to stop having a tantrum, stop feeling that. We need you to show up as though you are feeling good. Right. Because to behave. Right. Because this is hard for me. I feel embarrassed because other people are watching. I, whatever, you know, I think about that from the parents. Um, but I think this is where our culture comes into play is that we are emotion phobic. You know, we are, I think, I think part of actually what the positivity movement um, draws from is this kind of puritanical view we have about our emotions in general as a culture, that it's not okay to cry in public. It's not okay to be angry in public. It's not okay to share what's really going on. It's not okay to open yourself up and be vulnerable. And so when, you know, when kids then share these just humongous emotions, we as parents or we as friends of people who are doing this don't know what to do with it. And we become really uncomfortable because we're not comfortable with that level of emotion in ourselves. This happens in my family all the time. Um, my family, it just it is, is wonderful. I love my family. They're great. Have a tendency to be a little bit more passive aggressive. Sharing big feelings is not really a thing that they do well. And so, and I tend to be, tend to get really passionate about subjects. That's why I have my own podcast. And I will inevitably at every family gathering be told that I'm getting too worked up, getting really worked up, Anna, you're getting, you're overreacting, I think, <laughs> Anna, you know, and so that there's this way that they, whoo, everyone just gets a little uncomfortable and then wants to make me get smaller so that they can manage their discomfort. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that you say that, um, I, I had a similar experience growing up where there was a lot of tension in my family. So like, it took me a long time to figure this out because on paper, everything was looking really good, you know? Yep. Um, parents were together, grew mm-hmm. up in a, you know, normal middle-class upbringing. I mean, I never wanted for anything. We weren't mm-hmm. super wealthy, but like, we're certainly, we are fine. Right. Um, you know, just like on paper, everything looks good. But there was all this like emotional tension because, um, you know, it, the marriage wasn't perfect and my parents, you know, parents are now divorced. Um, and, and, you know, there were family issues, but because nobody talked about them because we were behaving, we were all showing up in this way. No, so no one ever really like sat down and discharged their emotions. I was always on a high wire. I was always like, you know, two hair's breaths from like exploding because I could feel all this tension. And that's what happens to the most highly sensitive person in the family. And then, yeah. And then they would, you know, the, the, the attention would turn to me. Because you were acting out. Because, because you're so emotional. Right. And, and so, but what I think was interesting, and you said something about this um, with your family too, is that they would look at you and be like, you're getting really worked up. And I think that, um, just in general, this isn't even necessarily just emotions, but we're such a problem focused society, right? We need to fix problems. 
And when it comes to emotions, the ones that we deem bad or negative or harmful or whatever, we really feel like we need to fix them for ourselves and for other people. And I mean, that's a whole, like, I, and I know therapists and I know that not all therapists think this way, but I think that there's that sort of, um, that line of thinking can exist in therapy where like, mm -hmm. you know, like we need to fix you. Um, you know, you're, you're feeling bad and we need to stop you from feeling bad. You know, how can we make you feel good? Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, obviously that's a whole, like, I'm sure therapists could weigh in and have a lot to say about that. Well, you know, but I would say that a lot of healers, particularly new healers or kind of uh, like not well-trained healers feel this way too. I just need to heal you. If I just heal you, like, let me do the healing. We'll just fix you and then you'll be better. But you know what? And I, I totally agree with that. But you know what? My clients are like that too. So, you know, I do posture yeah. movement therapy. And when people come in to my office, you know, I, a conversation that I have with them a, a lot, not every, you know, not everyone. So, you know, mm -hmm. this isn't a blanket statement, but a common conversation that I have is like, you know, people will come in and they'll say, well, what's, you know, what's going on? What are you noticing in your body? And they, they will list all the problems that they're having. Or if we've been working together and I've got them like do, going through a series of sessions, they might come in and be like, you know, say, what have you noticed? And say, I, I don't know. There's no pain. I don't have any pain anywhere. So I didn't notice anything. Mm -hmm. What do you notice? What are you seeing? They always, you're the expert. What are you, know? And so like, and I also notice that people sometimes get pissy with me when I ask them to work. So when I, know, I right? <laughs> when I ask them, it's because they show up, because, you know, it, they come in for body work, right? And this is, I, I don't, this is not blaming anyone. It's, these are just things I've observed. These are the cultural expectations. You know, this yeah. is how the medical model works. I understand. Exactly. Exactly. It's how the medical model works. I love that. Yes. Because people come in and they're like, you're the expert. You're the, you're the doctor. I'm not a doctor, but you know, basically you're the doctor. You fix me. I don't have, you know, like I'm bringing my car. My body is my car. I'm bringing it to you. You get your wrench out. You fix it. And so when you ask people to show up and to notice things that aren't problems, right? right? Like people have a really hard time noticing anything that isn't a five alarm fire, right? Like we, we don't notice our bodies until there's a problem. We don't right. notice the things that feel good because we don't notice emotions, right? So yes. we feel, and we feel our feelings physically. And so it's like, we shut everything down. We don't feel any emotions. We've got all our anxiety and our depression and whatever else, you know, and all of our trauma bottled up inside of us. And then we go to a body work and we're like, my back hurts. Can you make it better? You know? And, but but we're unwilling to start to notice ourselves in these, like, this is getting super meta, so stop me if it just stops making sense. Mm -hmm. But like, we're unwilling to start to notice the things that aren't the five alarm fires. We're unwilling mm -hmm. to sort of like start having, basically, it's like with the horses where um, what this trainer was having us do is connect and have and build a relationship with the horse so that, you know, now the horse is doing the work, but in a connected, present way, we are unwilling as a culture, not as individuals, but as a culture, unwilling or unable to connect to ourselves and build relationships with our own bodies, which is really the only way to heal that rift that people have, the mind-body rift. You know, and I would, I would really argue too that this goes back to the way that, uh, you know, I would, I would actually, I wonder, I theorize if this is, um, if this didn't start when we started you know, the, even before the industrial revolution, but when we started treating nature this way as something that we are separate from, as something that we don't need to connect to, as something that we lord over, 
right? Because the earth provides everything for us. It's an extension of our body, really. Um, And we don't, some people don't even recognize the seasons. You know, we're not present to what's going on. And I don't know, that, that, that's a theory of mine, that a lot of this disconnect from our emotions and from our bodies um, also stems from um, or potentially can be healed from deeper connection to, to the earth. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I, I think that there's some interesting meat in there because mm-hmm. you know you and i have talked about this um you know the culture that we live in is largely european white patriarchal um that's the predominant culture and there's a lot of drive to sort of separate ourselves from the quote like the heathens right you know, know. so like from from the colonial mentality when when the colonists would go in you know to africa or india or wherever you know people were colonizing the United States, <laughs> um, you know, there were like these native peoples that were like, those are the heathens, the uncivilized, they do not have the God or whatever the thinking was, right? Right. Um, and it's interesting. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Christine Kent. She's a, I believe she's a nurse, but she wrote a book called Saving the Whole Woman. And she talks a lot about how our obsession with um, like core strength and flat abdominals comes from the same kind of thinking of like, yes. The yes. colonists would go in and there were these native people who had these mm-hmm. curvy backs and rounded stomachs. And it was like, before that, if you look at the depictions of, you know, white people um, like George Washington and stuff like that, they had these browned bellies. And then it was kind of in the early 1900s that um, the whole exercise fitness flat abdominal trend came around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do, I think, I think you're right. I think that, you know, a lot of these cultural beliefs are rooted in this sort of trying to separate ourselves from, from a, uh, a more, you know, what, what has been deemed as pagan or heathen or whatever, um, mm-hmm. which tends to be a way of living that is more connected to the earth, more in mm-hmm. sync with the seasons, uh, more in harmony with like forests um, or, or the local agriculture. And it's, it, 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 that is the program I'm developing for 2020 right now is reconnecting. I'm, I'm trying to think of a name for it. It's like bringing back the heathen. I don't know. Like I want to reclaim heathenism, you know, it's like, it, you know, heathenism is, it becomes such a bad word, but like, you know, the way that, you know, pagans lived, they sustained that way of life for a really long time, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's what we deem it's, it's, it's biased, right? Like we call it heathen, but it's not, it's no. not, we, it's so interesting because we've created all these problems. I mean, we could get into like, you know, climate change and all kinds of topics here, but you know, we have tried to improve upon nature for a really long time and we're only messing it up. Oh, we fuck it up every time. I mean, this was so interesting studying school. You know, I studied forest management. Um, I was in, so in my, my first four years was resource conservation, which is in the school of forestry. So I had to learn a lot about like forest management, fire regimes, you know, all kinds of things. And basically what we think we know changes all the time because we don't know shit. And the main takeaway that I got was like, we actually don't know what a natural state of the forest is. We don't actually know. So even if we're trying to, 
uh, manage the forest in a quote natural way, we don't know what that is because before we came and colonized, native people were managing the forest themselves. They were in in Montana using ever at the end of in the fall before they would leave northern Montana, they would set low intensity ground fires to burn away the undergrowth, which created um, better crops or better you know, berries, more space. It created a better, uh, healthier forest for their uses. We don't know what happened before that, mm-hmm. you know? And so the, the, the thing about forest management is so interesting because there's always a purpose behind what we're managing for, right? And so even like this idea of like what's natural, we don't know. And we are going to wrap that segment up right here. <laughs> Because it is really hard to find a breakpoint in this ongoing conversation. But don't worry, part two is released as well. You can jump to part two right now if you've got the two hours to spend. Otherwise, just put it in your queue and it'll be right there, taking right off where we left off. Thanks again for listening to the show. All of the show notes, links, and references can be found at www.sensitivityuncensored.com. If you'd like to read more about high sensitivity or intuition, sign up for my mailing list, book an intuitive reading with me, or learn about my membership or school, please visit my website at www.sensitivityuncensored.com.